All right, Ron, you've been prayed for. I know you're going up to Moffat this week and know that our prayers will continue to ascend on your behalf. And for Donna, and for so many of us who are going through a great deal, we come to consider today an important matter in light of the struggles that we have in life because we're going to be talking about prayer. And let me say right off hand that for the believer, we could no more do without prayer than we could without air in our lives. We realize, we've come to the place where we realize that we utterly depend upon God for life and for breath and for all things. And we would no more think about living without prayer than we would think about getting up in the morning without breathing. I pray that's the attitude of your heart as we think about this important matter. For we come to Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. As the Lord Jesus, with his disciples, teaching them and instructing them, gives them a form of this prayer. It is shortened, an abbreviated version of the one that he offers in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. And this was a different time and a different setting. But nevertheless, it is consistent with what he already had told them. So let's look together just verses 1 through 4 of Luke chapter 11. Hear the word of God. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. May the Lord bless this reading of his word for the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. Benny Williams had a brain tumor. She and her husband had come to join the congregation that I was serving sometime before. But then the diagnosis came, and there she was, struggling with this illness that was slowly robbing her of the ability to communicate. And I remember being in my office on the morning that I got the call from her husband, Ray, asking if there was any way possible for me to come over that then he was really struggling. And I left immediately. I don't remember what I left behind, but you know there are those times that regardless of what your schedule is, you just go. And I went. And the issue at hand was she had reached the place where she could not say more than three or at most four words together in succession. She knew what she wanted to say. She was fully aware of how she wanted to communicate. But the mechanical ability was gone because of the, that brain tumor. And what concerned her the most was that from childhood, and this was just her, but as well as others, I'm sure, who had been taught... And so she always had prayed out loud, even when by herself. Now, not all of us do that. In fact, maybe perhaps very few of us do that, but that was Benny's practice. And she had reached the place where she was unable to string those words together. And she couldn't pray, and it so burdened her heart because she so wanted to be able to pray. And I remember we talked a few moments, and we found ourselves looking in Romans chapter 8. I said, listen, the Lord knows what's on your heart. Because the Spirit himself 
who abides within us, intercedes for us with those groanings and murmurings which we cannot utter. That's what God's Word says. I said, please don't worry. God knows as you offer your heart to Him in prayer. That was her concern in her final days on earth. Now, she's with the Lord now and in glory, no longer encumbered by such things and no longer concerned about them. But nevertheless, what would be your greatest concern if you found yourself being robbed of the ability to communicate or even to think? Would prayer be foremost? We don't know who the disciple was who asked the question. Who was it? Who was the kid who raised his hand in class and said, Hey, teacher, teach us how to pray. As I said, the Lord Jesus had taught them more extensively how to do it in the Sermon on the Mount, but perhaps, maybe, he didn't remember all the lesson or he needed a reminder. I'm sure he was listening just like all students do in class, right, teachers? Lord, teach us to pray. John taught his disciples how to pray. Can't you teach us how to pray? And so Jesus goes straight to it. When you pray. Now notice, there's a presupposition there, isn't there? Not if you pray. But when you pray. So as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, we know that we are to pray. In fact, the scriptures enjoin us, what? To pray without ceasing. We're to be praying all the time. I hope that's something that we increasingly are teaching ourselves to do and getting in the habit of it. I talked to a man one time who said that that was the greatest challenge of his life, was to, to, to live out each day in a continual state of prayer. And so he said whether he was lifting a cup of water to his lips or a morsel of food to his mouth or whether he was just in conversation, he just tried to train himself to give thanks to the Lord and, and to affirm his glorious name. So when you pray, say. And, of course, the address is as Father uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. He very purposefully instructed them to say, Our Father. But oh, how we can take that for granted. That the God who created the universe, who even now is sustaining all of it, and it's, it's becoming more vast. The more that we learn about it, the more that we have the ability to peer out there with uh, the technology that we have. We are just beginning to scratch the surface of how huge and vast this creation is. And this planet that we're living on is insignificant in relation to the rest of the universe. And yet the God who created all of that, who right now is sustaining all of that, and even with now we are told 8 billion people on the planet, we are able to say to him, Father. By the way, Yesterday was Veterans Day, and I meant to recognize those of you who have served in the, in the military in our country. I want to thank you for your service to our nation. My dad served. You know, he, he doesn't make much of it because at the time that he was drafted and went to basic training, the war in Korea was raging, and some of the men who had just been through training ahead of him did not come home. He was uh, deployed to Germany. Part of the peacekeeping forces there was in the military police unit. He said, you know, basically he drove a jeep and delivered the mail. And he diminishes his service in the armed forces. But, you know, he's my dad. And so yesterday, being Veterans Day, I wanted to post about him on Facebook. And I just simply wanted to make the point. I said, you know, the Department of Defense 
doesn't issue awards to people who are no longer in the military. But my dad, who has been faithful to my mother for 66 years and even now is taking care of her and has done so much to take care of all the rest of us, if his family could do it, we would confer upon him the Medal of Honor. Why would I say that? Because he's my daddy. And I love him. I love my parents. I love my family. I love my wife who's taking care of our grandson back there right now. The God who created the universe is our Father. Do you understand the presupposed love that is within that name as we address him, not formally, but in a familiar way? Father. And that's a privilege of ours. But what's the first petition? Hallowed be your name. Reverence for God should be primary in all life and certainly in our praying. Now, let's be clear. This means that his name is to be sanctified. It means that his name is to be holy. But we're not asking that his name be holy. God has always been holy. He is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. He can't be any holier now than he was ages ago. He won't be any holier ages from now than he is now. We're not asking that he be any more holy than he is, but we're praying that his name will increasingly be regarded as holy throughout the whole earth. Doesn't it grieve you when you're watching television and you see his name taken in vain? You know, for all the people who say so much about there not being a God, and they make fun of us, you know, because in prayer they think we're just talking to an imaginary friend. I heard somebody say that on the news recently. You know, for all their talk about God not existing, I, I noticed that they sure talk about him a lot. <laughs> they use his name in vain. It grieves us, as it should, because we want his name to be hallowed. We want... His name to be reverenced, to be exalted by all. And so that's the petition, that God's name be sanctified, set apart in our hearts, even as it is in reality, that it may increasingly be within us and among us. We, uh, we want his character, attributes, perfections to be more widely known and glorified by people everywhere. Oh, what a delight it is. Anytime I come across... A group of people who are engaged in the worship of the one true God. And even though it took a tragedy for me to realize it, you know, to, to know that this little girl who lives next, I say little girl, she's a young lady, but probably younger than our daughter, living next door with her grandmother, as we were talking about the crash that had occurred just not many yards from where we live this past week, she asked me to pray. And I suddenly began to realize, here is someone who professes Christ. And then had the opportunity to talk to her mother, who also professes Christ. And, you know, there's immediately a fellowship there. We've not met each other previously. I've experienced that in Taiwan, Mexico, Belgium, Romania, places throughout the United States. We are in this fellowship together. And it brings delight to our hearts when the name of God is exalted and glorified. So Jesus essentially teaches us to pray, not just for the exaltation of God, 
but also for the coming of his kingdom. That the reverence for God's name and the coming of his kingdom would be our priorities in prayer. Among other things, that essentially means that we are praying for the destruction of Satan and his kingdom. When war will be no more. You know, I think about those passages in the Old Testament. One which immediately comes to mind is talking about swords being beaten into plowshares. Wouldn't that be wonderful? To see hardware that's utilized for the purpose of waging war put to a peaceful use. Now, that won't be achieved apart from Christ coming in his glory and establishing his reign firmly and forever. But, oh, how I pray for the coming of his kingdom, because I'm increasingly realizing more and more that our devices are not sufficient to be able to accomplish peace on earth. We want it. We should work for it. We should never stop striving to work for it. But because of the wickedness and the depravity of the human heart, Jesus told us there will always be wars and rumors of war. There will be famine and earthquakes. There will be pestilence. There will be all the things that we're experiencing. But oh, how we should long for his kingdom to come. But that means the destruction of Satan and his kingdom. When sin will be no more. When evil will be no more. When this one who opposes the work of God with all of his being, who is out to destroy us, In praying for the coming of God's kingdom, we're praying for the destruction of his. And we should earnestly want everyone to acknowledge the Lord as king. And for the kingdom of this world to become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And that he shall reign forever and ever. So much. But isn't it interesting? Because we tend to be so self-centered. That if we go into prayer governed by our feelings, our tendency always will be to put ourselves first. And we'll immediately petition, oh Lord, give me everything from ice cream to healing, whatever it may be. But as we are instructed by Jesus, we see here how we ought to pray, how that our prayers ought to be prioritized, asking for things that will be of eternal significance, not just provide me with an immediate relief. He goes on, doesn't he? Asking for daily bread. Daily bread. Getting close to lunch hour for some, isn't it? It shows that we trust in God to supply our every need. In asking for our daily provision, we realize God's not just there to provide us with the big things. He's there to provide us with our daily needs. And I take bread here to be representative of our of our daily basic necessities in life. And by praying this, we're acknowledging everything comes from the Lord. We, uh, you know, we try to give thanks at every meal, whether we're eating at home or out in a restaurant, not doing it to make a show. We just simply want to be grateful. I don't know if I'll say this or not, but already in mentioning it, I guess I'm going to. I remember Dr. Kennedy some years ago on a broadcast from Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. He said, you know, one of the only things that differentiates us from hogs is that we stop to give thanks before we put our snouts in the, well, 
Dr. Kennedy said it, so uh, somewhat safe ground. No, think about that. Not just going through the motions, not making it perfunctory, not making it a, a repetitive exercise that's lost its meaning, but genuinely to be thankful for God's provision for us, but to ask Him daily for that provision. Lord, give us. Give us our daily bread. Give us what we need. We're prone to ask for the things that we want, and not all of the things that we want are needs. But ask Him what we need. Bread signifying everything necessary to sustain us. We also, of course, are instructed, as Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way, among the other petitions, forgive us our sins. Now, of course, this presumes that we have sinned. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that the one who is instructing us never sinned. Nowhere in Scripture will you ever find the Lord Jesus, when he's praying himself, asking to be forgiven. Not by the Father or not by anyone he ministers to. Have you ever been struck by that? Have you ever noticed that? I know I've mentioned it before, but I want to reiterate it. Jesus teaches us to ask for forgiveness of sins. He never had to. No record of it whatsoever. But we must because we sin. We have been born with that guilt inherited from our parents. And if there's any doubt... That we have been, just look at the way we live. Now, not everybody equally so. And it doesn't mean that anybody is as wicked as they possibly can be. But every aspect of our being, nevertheless, is impacted and affected by sin. And it's borne out in untold numbers of ways. Forgiveness of sins is absolutely necessary for eternal life. The guilt that is ours would separate us forever from God because his eyes are more pure than even than can look upon sin in his holiness he must be opposed to sinfulness and yet there's a way to be forgiven and of course the Lord Jesus even now as he instructs his disciples is on his way to Jerusalem to offer himself as that atoning sacrifice that is the means of that forgiveness But you and I are utterly helpless in this matter and would remain helpless apart from the work of Christ. But in our helpless condition, we ask for God's free, full, and gracious mercy in Christ. If we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Why do we take that for granted? Why do we just slough over this and and treat it as if it's unimportant or insignificant and yet how utterly essential it is that we be forgiven all because of Christ but note the way that he puts it here now again in the instruction in Matthew forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors here forgive us our sins our trespasses for we Ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. An unforgiving heart is not in a condition to accept forgiveness. Those who have received forgiveness, who have truly come to an understanding of just how corrupt our human nature is and how utterly without hope we would be apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and that gracious bestowal of grace through him, 
Once we come to realize that God has forgiven us and how merciful he has been, when we come to that realization, we realize that we have no ground upon which to stand and fail to forgive others. I have been forgiven of so much debt. Jesus, of course, gave us a parable about that. One who was forgiven much debt decided that he would force someone who owed him to pay. Christ said he was dealt with most harshly. Unforgiveness is a disease. It, even within the church, abounds. People who are seemingly unwilling to forgive feel like they are unable to forgive, have failed to reckon with how much they themselves have been forgiven. I leave that with you. Not time to give you examples, and you don't need me to. But I cannot begin to tell you how much freedom you are missing out on by continuing to hold a grudge, by continuing to fail to extend that mercy and grace that has been given you. So Jesus teaches this in no uncertain terms. And last, here, lead us not into temptation. God alone can deliver us, and so we must depend upon him completely to keep us from falling. There's no one else who can rescue us. The temptations of this world are great. Um, you know, they're innumerable. It's not like I can... Stand up here and give you a list of all the greatest temptations of the year 2023. They differ for everybody. Some people are tempted by some things. Other people don't struggle with that, but they are tempted by their own catalog of things. Who is able to deliver us from such things? Because we know that in giving into those temptations, apart from the grace of God, they lead us down that pathway toward utter destruction. Just as surely as if we were going down a road and the bridge is out up ahead and we're going to plunge into the river and yet we keep driving in that direction. Like we're going downhill and the brakes have failed. But God can deliver us. He does deliver us. He saves us. So we're asking him to preserve us from trials from which there is no way of escape. Oh, Lord, don't lead me into temptation. Don't allow me to be tested beyond my ability to resist. And we ask that our feet, as J.C. Ryle has said, may be kept that we may not bring discredit on our profession and misery on our souls. Oh, Lord, rescue me. Don't lead me to a place where I'll be tested and there's no way of escape. Scriptures promise that there will be a way of escape. Promises that he will not test us beyond what we are able to resist. And so we're asking the Lord for those things because sin kills. You know, most people today think that sin is just breaking a religious rule, doing something that the preacher says you ought not do, and they just kind of laugh it off, and it's no big deal. We live in a culture and in a time when these matters are treated so lightly because God is not regarded. So it's no wonder then when God is not regarded as creator and that he's holy. And we would just do whatever is right in our own eyes. Like in the time of the judges and other periods of chaos. 
Sin is real. And it destroys. And we all commit sin. Even in a state of grace, as God's children, as those who are redeemed, we know that we sin. And yet, and yet, it still poses a danger for us. I read this past week about another pastor who's fallen. Extremely successful in the eyes of the world. Leading a large congregation. And yet, abusive in his personal relationships and other things that I won't talk about here. Absolutely presented one face in public, but in private, someone else entirely. You know how much that scares me. You know, I've got some Pharisee in me, sure. I can read about something like that, and I want to say, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like all these other preachers. And you'd probably say, yeah, you're not like any preacher I ever knew. I'm just telling you, that kind of attitude can well up in me, too. You know, and I kind of want to say, oh, yeah, big mega church pastor. Yeah, I thought he was somebody. Look at that. I don't say it, but I feel it in my heart. But then immediately, as that was welling up in me this past week, I remember being so convicted and thinking, oh, God, please don't let me ever bring reproach on the name of our Savior. As imperfect and flawed as I am, Lord, please preserve me that I wouldn't be the means by which others would be discouraged from following you. I think about children I've baptized. I think about weddings I've performed, about funerals that I've preached. There have been hundreds of them. And I've thought, I don't want one of these days for somebody to look back in shame and say, yeah, he's the one that married us. But all of us, all of us should pray earnestly. As flawed as we are, that yet as people look at us, they may see the genuine article. One who is following Christ, whose heart is set on serving Him, and who is praying desperately to be rescued and not led into temptation in such a way that there would be failure. In such a way that uh, our lives would be harmed. And even though there's forgiveness, there is. Yet, that harm is done to our witness that perhaps cannot be undone in this life. Listen, there's grace in abundance. You can't outsend God's grace. But inasmuch as we realize that Christ has died for us, more and more our hearts should desire to want to live in gratitude to him and for all that he's done for us and in utter dependence upon him. So as surely as we need him for our daily bread and for the breath that we breathe, we need him desperately to deliver us from what we otherwise would be prone to run into headlong. Oh, how wonderful is grace. As I was thinking yesterday about Veterans Day, I couldn't help but think of uh, one of uh, the church members that I had the privilege of serving years ago, a man who was counted as a hero in our community, and for good reason, among those Marines of the 5th Marine Division who had gone ashore on Iwo Jima on D-Day, Red Beach, right next to Mount Suribachi. He saw her in the stings. 
in the last days of his life, he asked me to come over and see him. And he promised before he started talking that I would not tell his family what he was about to say. But he said, after all of those decades, he had to tell somebody. And he told me horrendous things that happened on the battlefield. Let me tell you something. We rightly honor those who have died in battle. But we have veterans walking among us who have experienced death every day of their lives after the action. It didn't end for them in a place under a marble headstone at Arlington. But every day they've lived with the memories of those that they saw cut down in the prime of life. And as he shared with me events that transpired on that battlefield, I cannot look at the Iwo Jima monument to this day without tears coming to my eyes. So we gratefully honor those who have sacrificed so much. But we do it because we care, because we hold dear the freedom that we have, because we're grateful for the sacrifices that have been made. How is it that we could look unto Christ at Calvary and see the one who endured the shame, the scoffing, the insults, let alone the crown pressed upon his brow and the spikes driven through his hands and feet. How could we look upon Christ who sacrificed all for us and live life as if sin is no more than doing something that the preacher dislikes? It should be our heart's desire to pray Desperately, Oh, God, lead me not into temptation. That we would come to hate sin as he does. But always realizing that his grace is sufficient, that there is forgiveness, and that we are washed clean. And I can remember Grady taking my hand and holding it tightly, saying, Preacher, I am so thankful for Jesus. I hope you are too. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. As you are great and awesome, as you have accomplished more for us than our minds can comprehend, in fact, in all eternity, ages from now, we will be at wonder of your kindness that you have shown us in Christ Jesus through such a wonderful bestowal of your grace. But Lord, would you please continue to teach us to pray. Lord, grant grace that we may grow, that our prayer life would flourish, that we would every day seek to pray without ceasing and making your name and the sanctifying of your name and the coming of your kingdom the priorities in our lives as well as our prayers. Oh, Father. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who yet, ages from the time that he spoke these words, continues to teach us even now. Praise your name. And Lord Jesus, draw us close. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.